So when I was uh, when I was in my early 20s, I had the opportunity to go to Cairo, Egypt. And when I was there, I decided to visit the Orthodox Church of Mar Girgis, that's St. George. And it's a church that dates back to the 10th century or earlier. And like most buildings in the Middle East, it has a courtyard around it and a high wall around the courtyard. And I remember I was so surprised when I walked through the doors of that wall into the courtyard and found that the entire courtyard was a cemetery. It was jam-packed with graves and sarcophagi and mausoleums. There were even some children, like you might imagine children, playing in front of the church. They were running in and out between the sarcophagi. Um, There were just the tombs of all the saints who had gone to that church in the past. And I remember that at the time it struck me as being very strange that in order to get into this beautiful church, you had to kind of walk through this landscape of death. And Ash, Ash Wednesday, with its, its smearing of ashes, with its reminders of our mortality, with the change in the liturgical scenery, the rubrics, it can kind of sometimes inspire that same feeling of strangeness. Why do we have to talk about death so much today? But the longer I'm a Christian, the more I recognize the strange role that death plays in the Christian faith. Every encounter with death in Christianity is at least a subtle rebellion against it, if not an outright trampling over death. Because for Christian, death death doesn't work quite right. It's been broken. And this changes even the way we mourn. G.K. Chesterton says, Uh, The world mourns in black, but the church mourns in violet. Violet is dark with density and combination of color. It is at once as blue as midnight and as crimson as blood. And tonight our liturgy is going to remind us of our own death. And we're going to look at the Old Testament passage from Joel. And as we look at this Old Testament passage from Joel, I want us to hold in our minds at the same time that aspect of the liturgy that reminds us of our death. You actually have on page 10, that's like the page after the homily page, you have a description of the liturgy of the imposition of ashes. Um, And when you receive the ashes, you'll see down there at the bottom of that page, the minister speaks a couple of sentences of scripture over you. The minister will say, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. Repent and believe the gospel. It's a call to remember your mortality to repent, and to believe the gospel. And our passage today from Joel calls us to those same things, though it switches the order of them around a little bit. So tonight, the message that I want you to hear from Joel is, remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Believe the gospel and repent. So you can turn over to Joel. And the first part of this pronouncement that we have in the, lit- in the liturgy. It sums up the weakness of humanity. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. These are the words that God spoke to Adam and Eve when he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. Remember you are dust. Remember you, are, you will die. Dust is the least solid kind of dirt. God didn't say earth, and God didn't say soil, and God didn't even say mud. He said dust. Dust can be scattered by the wind. 
Remember you are dust. Remember your weakness, your death. And in our Old Testament reading, Joel is speaking to the people of Jerusalem and Judah at a moment when they are face-to-face with their own frailty and weakness. They are face-to-face with the reality of their own death. Our passage starts off with, blow a trumpet, sound an alarm in chapter 2. But let me give you some context. Because in chapter 1, we learned that the land of Judah has actually been overrun by a plague of locusts that's worse than any plague of locusts that they had ever seen before. Joel pens a lament about it in chapter 1, and he says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Joel is looking out over his countryside that has been turned into a wasteland. And this is where he takes up his prophetic message. He turns to the people of Jerusalem and he says, Wake up, you drunkards, because your wine has run out. The locusts have destroyed the grapes. And he says to the priests and ministers, Start praying and weeping to God in the temple because your ritual has run out. There's no grain and wine to use in the temple to make offerings anymore. And it's in this wake-up moment that we pick up Joel's speech in our reading. And he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And he warns of the day of the Lord. That is the day when God will come and rid the earth of evil. And in this picture of God's judgment of evil, the nation of Judah is in a bad position. Rather than being in a safe place, resting in the presence of God, the people of Jerusalem find themselves as a part of that evil that God is going to come to judge. And Joel has to shout. He has to say to them, wake up, sound an alarm, look at your death on the horizon. He has to say, remember, remember that you are dust before you get returned to dust. And it's the same word that God calls us to hear this evening in this passage of scripture and in our liturgy. Remember that you are dust and to dust you will return, even if you're really smart really intelligent, really well-educated. You'll return to dust because you're dust. Even if you are very successful, maybe you're wealthy, maybe you're just comfortable, you'll return to dust because you are dust. Even if you are really well-liked, even if you are emotionally mature, even if you have reached your highest level of development on the Enneagram, you'll return to dust because you are dust. All the good things that you bring to the table, and we do bring a lot of good things to the table. That really is true. But all the good things you bring to the table aren't enough to shield you from pain, destruction, and death, because dust isn't powerful enough to defeat death. It's not just Christians who know this. Everyone knows this. The world knows that we all die. For some, it creates fatalism, which is to say, well, we all die, so nothing matters. 
For others, it creates a sense of carpe diem, seize the day. That great contemporary beacon of spiritual insight, the Huffington Post, tells us in a 2015 article about the trend of Ash Wednesday, saying that, quote, it isn't intended to be a downer. It's supposed to be a reminder that our lives are short and we must live them to the fullest. Seize the day. But Joel reminds us when he speaks of the day of the Lord that our weakness and death have a deeper significance to them than just everybody dies, carpe diem. He reminds us that there's a day coming when we will have to answer for everything we've done from the moment that we came from dust to the moment that we return to it that we're going to stand before the maker of all things. And if we offer God, I lived life to the fullest, we'll find our hands are just still full of dust. Because even if dust lives life to the fullest, it's still dust. We must remember that we are dust. But this act of remembering our weakness can turn us to look for something beyond ourselves. We can look for something that isn't dust. And this is where our liturgy speaks to us. Believe the gospel. Look with me at the second line of verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Here in the Old Testament, we find the seeds, the heart even of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in promise-fulfilling love. When we remember that we're dust and we look upon our own destruction gathering on the horizon, just like the people of Jerusalem did in Joel's day, in that moment, God can remind us, I am what you need, my grace my mercy, my promise-fulfilling love, my presence. I want us to take a moment and just soak in this description of God. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For the people of Jerusalem and for Christians too, this short description of God. In just a few words, it brings to mind a huge, rich story of God making promises to Israel and to us. If I were to say to you this line, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, your mind probably starts to make connections. That's the first line of the Declaration of Independence. You might immediately think of Thomas Jefferson. You might think of George Washington. You might think of the American Revolution. Uh, Because just those few words, they bring up a whole story of the formation of our nation. Well, for the people of Jerusalem in that day, these words, the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, they have the same effect. Because these are the words that God spoke about himself on Mount Sinai When Moses asked God, show me your glory, and it says that God passed in front of him and he proclaimed his own name before Moses, he proclaimed the Lord, 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that was the time when God made his covenant with Israel, when he promised that he would live in the midst of them, not just among those forefathers, but it says showing his promise-fulfilling love to thousands of generations. And here Joel reminds them of that promise with these words. It's like he's saying, you've remembered your death, now remember who God is. The heart of God is not destruction. The heart of God is mercy and promise-fulfilling love. Every struggle that uncovers that we are dust and all the destruction that reminds us of our own mortality, they point us to the truth that we need the presence of God in our lives the God of mercy and promise-fulfilling love. And the promise that he fulfills is that he will bring you into his presence to know a father whose love is deeper than the destruction that you face in your life. You may feel like destruction has come upon you and it has stolen your ability to worship God. Just as the locusts in Joel destroyed the crops so that no grain and wine offerings could be of worship could be made in the temple. Maybe so also the, the struggles, the sadness, the weakness, the destruction in your life, maybe those have robbed you of thanksgiving and joy, and they've made it hard for you to even worship God anymore. Well, verse 14 says that God can leave a blessing behind him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. It means that he can restore your worship. He can restore your relationship with himself just as he provided that offering to the priest. And a few verses after our reading, it's not in your bulletin there because it's a few verses down. It's verse 28 of this same chapter. God promises to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. He promises the gift of his Holy Spirit to overcome evil and destruction in your life. The God who formed us from the dust, who raised Jesus from the dead, can raise us from the dust on the last day. This is his promise to us in the name of Jesus. And he is abounding in promise, fulfilling love. This is the gospel. So what do we do? Well, remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. Believe the gospel and finally repent. Look with me starting at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Skip down to verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? These last two lines hold the key, I think, to this passage and to our understanding of repentance. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? It was obvious to everyone, to all the nations, to Judah and everyone, that Judah was actually very far from the presence of God. And Joel commands the priests 
to pray for God to turn this around, to make his presence known in Judah for all the world to see. You see, the heart of a holy fast is seeking the presence of God, seeking God to dwell among us. This was his promise to Israel and Sinai. And this is Jesus' promise to us through his spirit. The heart of a holy fast is to seek the presence of God. And this is the heart of our repentance. When we hear the word repent, we might think of repentance, um, we might think that maybe the heart of repentance is in those verbs that you're reading in verse 12 there, fasting, weeping, and mourning. But these, these aren't actually the heart of repentance. They're more a way of acting out repentance. See, we sometimes mistakenly think of repentance as being all about feeling terrible before God, about feeling incredibly guilty and then punishing ourselves for the bad things that we've done. And so we think of fasting and weeping and mourning as these ways of disciplining ourselves for wrongdoing. But that view of repentance is distorted. Instead, think about it this way. The goal, the destination of repentance is being in the presence of God. And the paths to that destination are fasting, weeping, mourning, prayer, generosity, meditating upon Scripture. Our goal isn't to feel terrible or even to feel purged. Our goal is to seek the presence of God. And Jesus warns us in our gospel reading about engaging in those disciplines with some other goal in mind. The example he gives is engaging in these practices in order to be seen by others. And then Jesus says that when we walk down the path of fasting or prayer or giving, then, yeah, if that's our destination to be seen by others, we'll be seen by others, but that will be our only reward. We miss out on the true reward of enjoying the presence of our merciful, loving Father. That's why we must tear our hearts, not our garments. In a few minutes, Father Aaron is going to call us to a holy Lent, a holy fast. He's going to invite us to come forward and receive a sign of our own death marked on our foreheads. I would invite you to ready your hearts so that when you receive this symbol upon your brow, you would receive it remembering that you are dust you would wear this symbol as a prayer, asking God for faith to believe that his presence alone is what is able to bring you life. And that as you walk out of this space tonight, your whole self would be oriented in repentance toward the presence of God, seeking him, seeking his Holy Spirit, which he promises to pour out. Remember that you are dust, And to dust you will return, repent, and believe the gospel in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.